Welcome to the 423rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Pamela Addison back to COVID Calls to talk about her life and advocacy since her husband passed away of COVID in 2020. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on Twitter, and you can always catch it on the COVID Calls YouTube channel as well. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of today, February 22nd, 2022, there are 5,897,264 deaths globally from COVID-19. And in the United States, 935,992 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to get right to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest whom I'm really happy to bring back to COVID calls, Pamela Addison. Pamela is the widow of a brave healthcare worker who lost his life to COVID at the start of the pandemic when her children were just five months and two years old. Since her late husband's death, she's become a COVID loss advocate, focusing on the young children who have lost a parent or caregiver to COVID, the forgotten grievers. She's also founded the group Young Widows and Widowers of COVID-19, which she founded several months after losing her husband so that no other young widow would feel alone on, these, on this unexpected and difficult journey of love, loss, and grief. She hopes her story, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, can make a difference and create change, especially for the youngest victims of this pandemic, the children. Pamela Addison, welcome back to COVID Calls. It's really nice to have you here. It's nice being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. So I'm from Waldwick, New Jersey. And I mean, like, well, we're getting like a like a week away from like masks being optional in schools um, in New Jersey because Governor Murphy made that announcement a month ago. Um, definitely less mask wearing and just like, I guess there's this exhaustion that people are just kind of done with COVID and then they just think it's time to move on from it. When we talked last, I had you as part of a, uh, memorial. I think this uh, COVID has done things to distorted my sense of time, but um, you did appear um, on a conversation that we had, which was a memorial episode. That was November 25th, 2020. Yes. And, you know, the numbers, I think everyone says now they're too low, but they still serve as a sort of time marker. And at that point, there were 261,480 deaths from COVID, but those numbers are so abstract. And I, I guess I wanted to just, you know, again, thank you for coming back to talk and, and maybe start a little bit by talking about your husband. 
So he was just a very passionate speech pathologist, um, a wonderful husband and father. You know, I think he gave everything his all, you know, like his heart. He has such a big heart. So in his career, he like used that heart to, you know, have difficult conversations and teach all his colleagues um, and his students some amazing things about speech pathology. And, you know, he's like an inspiration to them. And, um, you know, I've heard nothing but how much he meant to them. And the same thing with, you know, being a dad, like it's, it's heartbreaking that he didn't have some that time that he should have had with our children. But even my daughter being two, she still has like those memories and trying to understand like, you know, why they stopped type of thing. But she has those. And for my little one, he, he won't have those memories, but he'll have some videos, but you know, he'll see how much heart his dad had for him. And, you know, for me, he just loved me with everything he had and made me feel special every day. And, you know, he's, it's such a loss that he had to get sick and not make it. Can you remind us what your husband's name was and where he was from? So his name was Martin Addison. He was born in Bath, England, and he came over here around eight. So he lived in Staten Island most of his life. And then he moved to Jersey and And his career here. Speech pathology. I mean, this is one of the um, professions that I, as I recall, was pretty hard hit early in the pandemic because of the nature of the work. Right. So he would assess people's swallowing abilities and that's like right in your face. Um, And at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't enough PPE for employees. Like he had a fight to get an N95 mask, Um, but he probably had already been exposed by the time he got that. And, you know, they're the people who when you get off event, they're the ones trying to assess your swallowing abilities and help you with other areas that the event might have affected. So he was like right in it. And I, and his colleagues are still in it, you know, they see patients. I wanted to, you know, just follow up a little bit since the last time we talked. Um, I mean, you maintain a very active social media presence. You're an organizer. I think it's fair to call you an activist. I don't know if you're okay with that term. And, you can call me an activist, yeah. Okay. So um, what's this last year been like for you, 2021 and into 22? I know 2020 was a year of, I think, probably of shock and obvious profound sadness. And so what has this last year been like? I think it's been a lot of frustration. Um mm-hmm. I feel, you know, my husband was a healthcare worker and I just feel like they have been forgotten. The one, especially the ones that are fallen. Um, There's been so many that have died and they just seem like they were like collateral damage, I guess. Like there's nothing mentioned and they're the true heroes. They went in, especially the ones at the beginning went in with, with not knowing what this virus could do and they lost their lives trying to save people. So that's a little frustrating for me because it just seems that they've been forgotten. And then I have these two young children who I just don't understand why we're not talking more about the children who have lost a parent or a caregiver. 
Like that's detrimental to them. Like that is such a huge loss. And I think about, you know, I lost my father at 28, but I can't imagine being like under 18 and losing, you know, your dad, your mom, or the person who literally takes care of you. That's devastating. And I just feel like there isn't enough being said about these kids. Like we'll hit a number and it's all over the news, but then it's like, okay, we're moving on again from these kids losing a parent or a caregiver. So I think that's what's frustrating. They, they're they just not talked about enough and we forget about them. And they're the ones that have been affected probably the most. What do you owe that, that um, you know, lack of discussion to? I, and I'm right there with you. I mean, I'm surprised every single day that we're not talking about, you know, the healthcare workers who have, who continue to be at the front lines, you know, 23 right. months later, continue to die, continue to suffer mental health injury, moral injury, you name it. Um, I mean, I'm sort of curious how you explain it to yourself when you sit down at night and think, why aren't people talking about this? What's the reason? I mean, I feel like some people don't want to talk about because it it's like it makes it real. Um you know, I feel like too, like when my husband died, like I would always get the question, oh, did he have an underlying health condition? Because they want me to say yes, so they don't have to worry about, you know, them themselves, you know, being the same age as him getting it and possibly dying, you know? So I think it's some people just don't want to talk about it because they don't want to believe it's real. And there are a lot of people who think this is nothing but a hoax. So I feel like that's some of it. And I think there's just other issues that we focus on more like masks and how that takes away our freedom and all this, all these mandates and vaccinations. And I think there's just more um, talks about that stuff than the people behind, you know, the scenes, the ones that have lost their lives, the ones that are grieving the loss of someone that they loved. How do you handle that situation when somebody asks you if your husband had a pre-existing or underlying complication or condition? I mean, I answer it no, <laughs> but I think I probably give it a little bit of an attitude when I answer it. And I also say what what it doesn't really matter because I'll say I have the underlying health condition and I'm still here. So, you know, yeah. it just shows you that it doesn't really discriminate. Let's talk a little bit about the you, you mentioned um, your children and thank you for thank you for that and um, there have been a couple of waves of research that have been made headlines about um, the impact uh, the sort of bereavement impact and and all of the children some of these studies that came out in two thousand twenty and then last year they're really I mean, they take your breath away when you consider the scale of the number of children who've lost a parent or two parents or they lost a grandparent. And the, the multiplier of that through society is, is really powerful. And yet it does seem like, you know, that might capture a headline for a day. And then those researchers are doing their work and then it slides off the front page again. How have you reacted, you know, when those studies get published or when that makes it into the news? What do you do? I tweet the heck out of it. <laughs> right. Important. Sure. Um, 
And I, it may, it, I'm glad that it is being talked about in those moments, but it's just the thing is my statement is it needs to be talked about more. Um, Cause it, it, it just really shows you the impact that this is going to have on this generation of kids who have lost someone like a parent or caregiver. And then there's all these other losses that they, you know, they could have lost someone they were really close to like a family friend, a, you know, grandparents. So there's, not just the kids who've lost a parent and a caregiver, there's all these other kids who have lost someone else very special to them. So, I mean, I just try to, you know, keep on raising awareness about it because it just needs, it needs to hit people. It needs to hit people and they need to understand that these kids are suffering and then they're going to continue to have, you know, their grief and it's going to be a lifelong it's it's lifelong. It's with them forever. Is it the kind of thing that you anticipate your kids are going to talk about? And, and how will they talk about it? I mean, you're an advocate, as we talked about. You're an activist. You're out there. They're going to they're, they're growing up in this situation and they will be called upon to describe their experience. I, I wonder about that. I worry about that, honestly, for children. And yet at the same time, often it is survivors of victims whose voices will carry extra weight, maybe even carry the day when important policies are discussed. And, and they certainly will be in the coming years around support for these children. What do you think about when you think about having them in that kind of that kind of role? Maybe you don't plan to. I don't know. I mean, I think it's eventually it's up to them. Um, whether or not they want to do it. I mean, I feel like they might because they, they're they going to see me, you know, um, advocate because I'm not going to stop. You know, it's going to be until thing, changes are made, I am going to like fight for these children and especially, you know, my Elsie and Graham. So maybe they will want to. And I think it's important to hear their voices. And, you know, Elsie's pretty... <laughs> she already knows so much and understands so much. So I could totally see her being someone who might share her story because I think in some ways she already does. Like even at daycare, she'll, you know, tell her classmates she doesn't have a dad because he got sick and he died, you know? So she's already aware of her situation. So I think she could actually be one of those powerful voices that you might hear. And I support her if she wants to do it or not. Now, as you're talking, I'm thinking of a mutual friend of ours, Kristen Arquiza, who's who's changed the world, I would say, um, since she came as an advocate. You know, her father died early in in the pandemic, right. and so there has been attention, you know, for adult children. Um, but this younger generation that's going to grow up, they're going to have a, a kind of a special voice, but also a hard set of responsibilities, I think. And I, and I think also about, you know, children of first responders who died on September 11, some of whom have gone on to you know, powerful roles in speaking out for healthcare in the aftermath. I, let me, let's talk about the, the moment, though. Um, when you say you're, you're going to fight until changes are made, what do you need right now? What do victim families need by way of support? 
I mean, there's definitely the financial aspect of it. Like you think most of our families have lost half or more of our income. And within that, we have children grieving and they need, you know, the mental health services that are super expensive in this country. Like most insurance companies don't cover therapy. So now we have to, you know, find ways to, you know, make sure our kids are okay and, you know, pay out of pocket. But we're also have all these other bills that, you know, used to, you know, we had our husband's income or, you know, some widowers had their wives income. So things were a bit easier. Now it's like, you know, some people have to work two jobs now to make sure they keep their house, to keep the car, to, you know, make sure they can afford therapy for their child because it's so necessary. So I think we definitely need the financial support and the mental health support. I mean, there should be something for these children that's, you know, government funded so that they get the help they need because this is a mental health crisis for these young children. And I saw it in my daughter. She was only two, but she changed and she needed therapy. And, it, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, be able to set aside money to, you know, give her that therapy. But some widows are not as lucky as I am. So I think there just needs to be something for us to help us for our children. Because you think like we can't afford things. There's all these secondary losses and that hurts our children too. Like some children have lost the home that they lived in with their dad or their mom. Right. Like that's detrimental to them too. They're losing everything. And it shouldn't be that way. I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Pamela Addison today, the founder of Young Widows and Widowers of COVID-19. And let's just stay with this issue for a second and because it's a really important point about the, the loss of a parent um, or of a spouse, but also then the follow-on effects, the economic effects that are connected with that. Is that something that's pretty common in the, in the group that you are participating in? Yes. How, how are people coping with that? I mean, it's, you know, and it's sad too, because a lot of people have had, you know, have had, you know, GoFundMes for them. And that's the way they've gotten some money to get them back on their feet or to give them enough money to survive for the first, you know, few weeks or months. And then there's like nothing other than that for support. And yes, most of the widows have had financial difficulties whether it having to be pulling a kid from a school that they attended because they can't pay the tuition anymore. You know, some, some people can't afford like the extracurricular activities anymore that, you know, because, you know, sports are expensive or being able to travel because now you're only a, you know, you're a solo parent. There's not that other person that can travel and you stay home with the other kids. There's a lot of that kind of stuff happening. And a lot and, of those have sold, had to sell their houses because they just couldn't make the payments and, you know, having their car taken away or their spouse's car. But that's like, you know, something that affects the kids too, because that was daddy's car. Have you had an opportunity to speak with elected officials about this? I mean, I, this is the kinds of things you're talking about here are um, part of it is not fixable ever. 
Part of it, though, is fixable right now. I mean, financial resources were made available at multiple junctures in the pandemic. Um, and it would strike me that that's just a common sense, even on the grounds of just basic mental health for people. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. But not to mention the sort of moral responsibility of government to take care of those who were in harm's way, as your husband was. Right. I mean, I've spoken like one time. I, I you know this is all new to me. So I've been, you know, taking, you know, classes or like trainings to like learn how to do all this stuff. So it's something I'm definitely going to start doing more of because there is, you know, a definite need for it, especially in the mental health realm of, you know, children need the support because little kids, I mean, they're resilient, but they also, all grieve at a different in a different way and at different stages all their grief is very different and more like you know the older you get the more complex it is because you understand more like Elsie's is very limited but you know with each stage you know she'll learn a little bit more about what happened and re-grieve and that's gonna she's gonna need the support When you have discussions, I'd like to hear a bit more about the um, the group. You know what what the group's activities are, the young widows and widowers, uh, or you know, group at this at this point. Do people stay with it for a while? Do people tend to sort of drop out and come back? Like, how is the group holding together? Because keeping people together amid all of that stress is a sort of a it can be solidarity, but it also can be work too, right? Yes. I, so I feel like with the group. Now it's kind of evolved. So Mm -hmm. people have made those connections with, you know, people that they um, have bonded with. So for them, like they might not come into the group as much because now they have their like group people that they can like call and talk to. Um, But, you know, we're accepting new members all the time. So they haven't made those connections yet. So that in itself, you know, they'll, still ask the questions about financial stuff or, you know, did you do FEMA for the funeral reimbursement? And then, you know, people who have done it will comment about the process and what they have to do. So it's still like a place, a resource for people to come for help, you know, social security questions, you know, there's always some sort of question, especially within the new widows that we accept. So I think, you know, and then, I post questions to try to make those, you know, people realize, oh, this person's like me. Maybe, you know, we could get along or, oh, we live not so far from each other. Maybe we can meet up. So the group kind of is more like a place like that now. I mean, it's so interesting that it it must be people who were have been with it since the beginning, I suppose, since you founded it. Yes, there are. Do you meet? I mean, now that you're able to meet people in, in person, sort of safely, do you do that? Yeah. So some widows have met. Yes. I, mm. I mean, like I've met a few people who are local to me, um, mm. but I haven't, you know, but I've also connected with someone from West Virginia and Missouri. I haven't like ventured out there yet, but you know, we talk on a regular basis. So, you know, it's like 
you haven't met, but you like feel like you're connected. But there are people who meet. Yeah. So let me ask you about your husband's coworkers. How are they doing? Um, so his whole department basically changed, um, because, um, a couple of people didn't return to work after, you know, they were on maternity leaves during the, um, start of the pandemic. So they just decided not to come back. One of them said it was just, wouldn't be the same without him. Um, and then one of them left and moved somewhere else. I think she took a little bit of time off mental because she needed it mentally and then went back into like you know the war zone so i i think for her i think she is you know she's very like this is what it looks like you know like all the gear and everything and i'm sure she's tired you know i mean i feel like i i I sometimes wonder if martin would have been able to like last this long like with seeing everything that these healthcare workers are seeing, like, I wonder what his mental health would be like. So, um, you can, you can tell that (laughs) his colleagues are tired. Hmm. I want to ask you about a few policy issues and, and how you've been approaching these. Let's talk about schools, particularly the masks issue. You started out by talking about how, I guess the mask mandate falls in New Jersey, when when we last spoke, I was living in New Jersey. Still at that point, I don't now. I live in South Korea, but um, frankly, I was a little surprised at Governor Murphy, who I supported, um, and who I think as did as well as any governor in the United States. Maybe I'm going to leave the governor of Hawaii aside because I continue to be very impressed with what Hawaii has done. But um, talk to me a little bit about your your thoughts about that and the mask mandate and and. It, it also speaks to this issue you were talking about, your frustration, that it seems that people want to just kind of put it aside now, but I'm not so sure we're ready for that. Yeah, I just think it's too soon. Like, I'm not saying that we're, we're going to be in mass forever, but I think right now it's too soon. When you think about the kids, we're going to unmask kids. And I mean, like the vaccination rate amongst the five to 11 year olds isn't like at a high percentage. And then a lot of those five to 11 year olds go home to under fives and they're not even eligible for a vaccine yet. So I feel like we're not thinking about the kids again. Like, yes, most, a lot of adults are vaccinated, but it's still not, you know, everybody, but in a school, we have these kids who are not vaccinated. They, they might get the virus. Um, and bring it home. And then you have people who go home to immune compromised people, family members. And just because they might be vaccinated doesn't mean they're completely 100% protected. So I feel like we're not thinking about, you know, the minorities again, like the, the children and the immune compromised and the elderly. Um, and I just feel like we're only thinking about, oh, most of the adults are vaccinated. So, you know, it's safer to be unmasked or it's it's time to be unmasked. We got to free these smiles. And honestly, my kids have no problem wearing a mask. So I don't understand like this whole thing with masks are ruining my child's life. They're really not. I wanted to ask you about that. So your, your kids 
wear masks and um, what do they say about it? Or do they say anything about it? It's just the way life is. And I mean, they know they to wear it. Like my yeah. little guy gets so upset. Like if I pull, like I, when I, I had to go get him COVID tested because he had a cough and like he couldn't go to daycare unless I proved he was negative. Right? right. So he was more upset about me pulling down his mask so the person could do the test than the actual test, you know? <laughs> so he knows he needs his mask. My Elsie, I pick her up. She doesn't realize that the mask is on until she tries to put like her snack in her mouth. And she's like, Oh, I forgot to take this off. Like they don't even notice. Right. It's just something that they do without question. And I feel like you're a lot of kids are like that. And I still believe that most of this like hatred for masks comes from the, the parents, the adults. And it's not the kids who are, at all suffering, it's like the adults don't like it. So therefore their children must not be able to handle it. And you see all these, you know, even in like special education, all these kids with autism and they're able to wear a mask. So I don't understand this argument. <laughs> Let's turn to the vaccination issue for a second. And I'm particularly interested in your, your view on how the rollout has been for the uh, under 11 and then also this discussion uh, for the for the much younger children, uh, we're still waiting for that. What are your your views on you know vaccination for younger kids? I think it's important because now we see that there's these variants that do affect children even more than the original variant. So before we had this like sense of security, it was like oh it doesn't really affect kids, but now we're seeing like an increase of hospitalizations. So I think it is really important for these children to get vaccinated. Um, I just think there is a hesitant, you know, you're hesitant because you don't, I, I understand that this vaccine is like relatively a quick one. And like, you know, pe people are hesitant about the vaccines that have existed for years, but I've never felt that way. It's like, there's a vaccine to protect my kids. They're getting it there because I want them to be safe. So I feel more needs to be done to, uh, to make aware of how important it is to have your kids vaccinated. I, I, you know, I, they had all these incentives for adults to get vaccinated, but right. now it's kind of like, all right, well, maybe the kids will get vaccinated. Maybe there needs to be incentives. Although I don't, I'm not a big supporter of that in some senses because I felt like some of that money should have gone to the widows in that state that are, you know, trying to survive or, you know, families who are trying to survive because of COVID. But maybe there needs to be, you know, more incentive for children to get it. Let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. And I'm talking to Pamela Addison today. Uh, and Pamela is an advocate for families who lost a loved one to COVID-19 Pamela, let me ask you, um, so the Marked by COVID organization is one that's been pushing for a COVID Memorial Day. And I wanted to ask you a bit about memorialization. It, it's, it's um, I guess I want to ask you at sort of a two levels. And one is like, you're just daily practices of memory. And because you're a really eloquent speaker about your husband and about what your family's been going through. And, and so I want to sort of talk a little bit about how how you keep memory alive, but then to talk at a more societal level, like what do we need? Is a Memorial Day going to be, uh, 
something that will be worthwhile? Do we need a, a, a monument, a national, like what, what would make a difference? Okay. So um, the kids, you know, see pa Papa's all around the house. So they usually kiss him, his, a picture of him goodnight because they both have one in their room. And, you know, we just, when we talk about, you know, we point to a picture, we'll talk about that. Um, sometimes I'll show a video of like a memory. So he's talked about daily, you know, we talk about how much he loved them, you know, and he's watching and, you know, Elsie every day will say Papa's in my heart at some point in the day. Cause that's where she knows he is because she loves him. So that's how we keep his memory alive. And, you know, the little guy was only five months. And, you know, when I say, who's that, he goes, Papa. So that, and that was a big thing for me. Like I wanted to make sure that that would be something that he knew who his Papa was. So the fact that now that he's more verbal and is able to tell me that that's Papa, that's, you know, such a big deal. I do think memorialization is very important because it really validates for them that this was a loss and it was, you know, a tragic one. And, you know, there's that Rami's Heart COVID-19 memorial in Wall, New Jersey. And I took them after it opened and Elsie, you know, saw Papa's Rock, then knew where it was, um, you know, could point to it. And that was what I want. Like, that is so important because not only did she see Papa's Rock, but she saw so many other people's names there. And even though she can't count or, you know, understand like fully what that it means, she saw that there were a lot of hearts with rocks in it. And she knows that, you know, those people also died like Papa. So, and I saw the sense of pride that there she was able to like point to his rock and be like proud that that's where his rock was. And then we went back another time for like um, their holiday lantern lighting. And she knew he was in five and she went right to it, you know, and that just shows the importance of having a place to go to, you know, see his name, see something beautifully made for him and, you know, see that she's not alone because there were so many people there. And she said, mama, they, they, they died like Papa, you know, you know, so she yeah. knows that. So I think there does need to be, you know, that's a great memorial, but yeah, there should be another national memorial somewhere. Um, Can you describe what that memorial looks like for folks who may not be familiar with it? So um, it started off on the beach and it was clamshells painted um, yellow and in the shape of a heart. So now it's at a farm and there the hearts are mounted and it's like in this little, I don't know what you it's like a little, it kind of looks like a little farmhouse. Mm -hmm. And um, each heart is there. And then, you know, it's labeled with the number. And, you know, you know where your loved one's name is. And you can go visit it. And it's just really beautiful. And inside there's rocks with names. Because people wrote down their loved one's names. And the essential workers have a special, like, yellow rock. So it, it designates that they're, you know, they were, you know, an essential worker. So Martin's Rock looks a little bit different than some others, but, you know, it's a place. And 
it's beautifully done. It, there's um, stepping stones where you can get your loved one's name onto. Mm. And it's just, it's a beautiful um, memorial. I, thank you for describing that. And the um, founder of that, uh, Rima, Rima Salmon, I think, yes. was, was a guest. And Kristen Urquiza hosted, guest hosted COVID calls, and she was a guest. And it strikes me that that, I mean, your description of that is really powerful. And that that maybe because of COVID's, because of the global reach of COVID, that that's what people are going to need are more local memorials, which are locally very meaningful, like part of the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not that a national one, and I, I'm in favor of the idea of a, of a Memorial Day, because I think it would remind policymakers that they need to take seriously the kinds of, of actions that you were describing. Um, they need to do their job. Right. But in terms of mourning with your family, it's it strikes me that what you described is it does sound like healing. Yeah. And, and you know, like I have a picture like they're they're like my son and daughter are hugging in front of it. Like it's just like a, like I think it just for them, it was some sort of like, you know, this is special and this is like ours. And I think that's why in a Memorial Day is also important because. You know, when we have these days off in school, we talk about why we have these days off. And I feel like for the children who have lost someone, whether it be a parent, a caregiver, or like another family member, to have that opportunity where, you know, it's talked about and why we have that day off, it's like a teachable moment. And I think we also need that. And like you think, you know, when there's military family, you know, you have that day and it's like, you're kind of, there's that pride there too. And I think kids need that because honestly, the way COVID has been portrayed, it's kind of like some kids have that like embarrassment or they're ashamed that their parent or some family member died of COVID. And I think we need to step away from that and make it more of like, no, this, this was a tragedy and you should be proud of your, loved one because you know they fought they fought a good fight because you know martin fought for 26 days and you know when elsie and graham are old enough to understand that they're gonna know how hard he fought to come back to us and what he went through in trying to come back to us and i think you know memorial day would have that time of reflection and you know give the kids who have lost someone that sense of pride we're almost up on time in our conversation, but um, I wanted to ask you this question because, uh, so I have not lost a loved one to COVID, but you, the way you've talked about frustration and the way you've talked about um, people's desire to move on, and we didn't talk about the political strife, but this pandemic became so partisan and has become so political. Uh, we're going to need a national healing process, not just in the U.S., in other countries as well. Um, it's too much to put on on victims, advocates, I think. But it, on, on the other hand, I think who else should lead it? I mean, I think you should lead it. You know, when I think of like who should be at the forefront and can speak like with real authenticity about why we need to talk about these issues and come back together and support healthcare workers. But I wonder if you have mixed feelings about that, because like this is, is this going to be your life's life work? I mean, it's too much to put on you, I think. But by the same token, I, I want you to lead it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for the 
people who have lost someone, I feel like it does need to come from us. And for me, I feel that this has been, helps me heal. It gives me purpose. Um, it honors my husband's legacy, you know? Um, so I think for me, I am okay taking that on. And I think a lot of people who have been taking like heavy things on, it is because that they are passionate about this, but also I think it is healing and it's helping them, you know, heal because they're doing something for their loved one. So I think it is a bit taxing and, you know, we all need mental breaks. I think we all have taken them because it does at some point drain you, but then you come back and you're like, right where you left off. So I think families and especially people who've lost someone do need to lead it because we're the ones who know. Just want to remind folks, you've been listening to COVID calls and we have a special COVID calls sort of double header today. So in a few minutes, we'll start a new episode with political scientist Don Kettle. So please do join me for that. You can catch that live on Twitter. Um, I just want to thank my guest, Pamela Addison, who is the founder of Young Widows and Widowers of COVID-19. And you can find her and follow her, please do, on Twitter. What is your handle on Twitter, Pamela? At Reading Swan. At Reading Swan. So be sure to check that out and check out her Facebook group. And uh, we'll be watching you and standing right there with you. And um, I can't thank you enough for this time and for what you do. And I hope you have a, a healthy year and your kids do too. And uh, look forward to speaking with you again, Pamela. Yes, thank definitely. you. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.